this morning. As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, uh, please, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, um, simply boggles my mind to think that the God of all that is has communicated to us in various ways uh, through prophets by sending your son the living word and now giving to us this written word and so I pray that this word today will be a blessing to us will grow us up will encourage us will grant grace to us, will help us even as we live. And so please, now I pray your blessing upon the reading of this word and our hearing of it and also as we think about it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to John in chapter 21. John chapter 21. I want to read verses one through 19. Um, I took up some of this a couple of weeks ago, and now I want to finish it, but I want to read the whole of it so we can see the context that is here, because we'll be building on what we said before. So John chapter 21, please, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel, of, of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish and they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, and this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to them the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Last Thursday in the life of the church was Ascension Day. So today is Ascension Sunday. And it's just a time that causes us to realize, yes, of course, Jesus has ascended, we know that, and he's ruling and reigning, right? How, how does it put it in, in Ephesians uh, chapter 1 uh, that we considered some months ago that God has raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So uh, one of the big questions after Jesus rose from the dead and before he ascended was what's life going to be like after Jesus ascends? In fact, that was a great topic of his discussion. Even the night before Jesus was crucified, when he was with his disciples, he was saying to them he was going to go away. And they were troubled by that. He said, I can't tell you everything now, but you'll get it because the Holy Spirit's going to come and you'll see what I, what I mean. And, and and so we have this chapter in, in John as, as kind of a, an epilogue to the, to the, to the, the, the the prelude that he gives us in chapter one, where he talks about Jesus coming. And now what's it going to look like after Jesus ascends? Now Jesus is still with them in the passage that I read, but, but there's a, a glimpse of life after the ascension of Jesus. By that I mean this. You remember a couple of weeks ago, I had a couple of weeks where I wasn't here, but a couple of weeks ago when I preached from the first part of this chapter, it was a bit of deja vu for the disciples of Jesus. Uh, Deja vu in the sense that when Jesus first called Peter and a few others, uh, they were fishing as well. And Jesus was in the boat with them they, they knew he was there. They had been fishing all night, hadn't caught any fish. And Jesus said to these expert fishermen, put your nets out on the other side. And Peter said, okay, but we've been fishing all night. But when they put their nets on the other side, you remember that they caught so, much, so many fish that their nets began to break. And so they had to call another boat over. And so they put the other fish in, fish in that boat too. And the boats began to sink because they had so many fish. And you remember that, that Peter was astounded by this, saw his own sinfulness, wanted to run away. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. I, I need you to know something. And what I need you to know is I'm going to make you fishers of men. So now the question is, what's it going to look like after Jesus ascends? We saw that he was Lord over this catch at first because he was there. But but now we have this scene that John gives us. And this scene is an interesting one because, because again, they're out fishing. 
Jesus is on the shore. They, they, they don't know it's Jesus. So they think he's not there. They fish all night, catch nothing. They hear this voice from the guy on the shore saying, put your nets on the right side. They do that. They catch a multitude of fish. So many fish. They count them, 153 large fish. They're astounded by that. When that happens, John probably says, wait a minute. I know who that is. That's Jesus on the shore. And so Peter swims to him and all that. You get a sense that Jesus is saying, even though you can't see me, I'm still the Lord. Even though you can't see me, I'm still the Lord of this catch. Even though you can't see me, you'll be fishers of men and you'll really catch people. Peter would know that. I mean, on the day of Pentecost, the, just this Jewish celebration that was just round the corner, uh, that, that when, when, when Jewish men from all over the known world really would come into Jerusalem, uh, on that day, the Holy Spirit would fall on the disciples of Jesus and Peter would preach. And when Peter began to preach, 3,000 men, the scriptures say, were saved on that day. And you wonder, I just wonder, this is my own speculation. This is how I kind of read and meditate on the text at times. I just see at the end of that day, as Peter was going to bed, just smiling, going, you really are here. We really did catch men. You really are still the Lord, you see. Ah. And so the question, how's Jesus going to gather his people, he's going to gather his people through the preaching of his word. Through the sharing of his word, through the telling of this gospel. And he's still sovereign over that word. He's still the one who brings. That's why we have confidence when we share the gospel. That's why we have confidence when we speak this truth. And not because we're so great, we're no better at this then those disciples were at fishing all night and catching nothing. The only reason they caught anything was because Jesus was sovereign over that catch. The only reason people come to faith through the word that we preach is because Jesus, even though we can't see him, is still ruling and reigning. He's still sovereign over his word. He's still gathering his people. The point is he's doing it through his people, through his church. We have to bear that in mind always. But we do it with confidence because we know that he's Lord of this gathering. He's Lord of this catch. Well, now the metaphor changes from fish to sheep, <laughs> from fishermen to, to shepherds as Jesus is working through there. But still, this is another aspect of the, the work of the church. That not only do we gather as Jesus is sovereign, but also we care for and nurture as Jesus is still the good shepherd. And he does all of that, you see, uh, through us. The shepherd is a powerful image in the scripture. We, we read Psalm 23 together. Um, I, I, I have to be honest. I, I don't have to be honest, but I'm going to be. Um, uh, and tell you something. I, I probably say the 23rd Psalm at least once, if not a half a dozen times a day. It's just one of the one of my go-tos. It's just, I just. In fact, I was going to going to sleep last night, trying to at least, and uh, I realized I had to laugh at myself because I don't count sheep 
I count the shepherd because I say the 23rd Psalm in my head every night to go to sleep. Uh, it helps me. Sometimes Carol will say, are you talking or are you praying? <laughs> what are you doing? And many times it's just the 23rd Psalm that I forgot and my lips are moving. But, uh, but it's a great image, of course, of God because we, we get it. We understand a shepherd is the king of the sheep. He manages everything. They're lost without him. He feeds them. He guides them. Uh, He protects them. He binds up their wounds. He goes after them when they're lost. Um, Without a shepherd, the sheep are so vulnerable that they cannot, they will not live, you see. And so God says to his people, I'm your shepherd. Don't worry, you needn't want. I'll lead you, I'll guide you. Even when you're going through death, I'll be with you. Even when you're in the face of your enemies, I'll lay out a table before you. Okay? Uh, even when you're hurting, I'll anoint you with oil. Even when you're running, I'll pursue you with mercy and grace. And your end is assured because you'll dwell in my house forever. I think about that, okay. He's the shepherd. He's the only one who can make that happen. Well, how does he do that? Well, as we read through the Old Testament, especially, we see that he shepherds his people by way of people. <laughs> Shepherding in his name. There are the elders of Israel who, who manage the affairs of the tribes. There are the priests who lead the people into worship and, and into the presence of God. There's the, the prophets who, who shepherd the people by uh, calling them back to the covenant that God has made uh, with and for them. Uh, the kings protect them from enemies and various borders and make sure there's material provision and all of that. So how does God shepherd his people? He does it through his people, people that he's called to, to shepherd in his name. But, but he's still sovereign over that. The, the difficulty is in the old covenant that those shepherds, those shepherds failed. They were unfaithful. In fact, when the prophet Ezekiel speaks of these shepherds, he speaks to them like this. This is Ezekiel chapter 34. So the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves should not shepherds feed the sheep. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves. With the wool you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and with forth force and harshness you have ruled them. Uh, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And some of this is figurative in the sense that you've not cared for them spiritually, so they've wandered spiritually. Some of them, some of this is material that, that you've not cared for them, so the enemies have come and wreaked havoc on them materially and physically. But, but we see the, the indictment against the shepherd. So what does the Lord say? Verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep, 
that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I'll bring them to their own land and I'll feed them on the mountain of Israel uh, by the ravens and in all the inhabited places in the country and I'll feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down to Declares the Lord, I'll seek the lost, I'll bring back the strayed, I'll bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and I'll, and, and, and the fat and the strong I'll destroy, I'll feed them in justice. And then later he says, I'll rescue my flock, they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them, and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so God says, I'm going to come. I'm going to come, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be their shepherd. And, and it's through my servant David. Everybody knows by this point David has been dead, gone. But they know the son of David is coming. So you can only imagine all the hairs on all the backs of necks that must have gone up. When Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And everyone would go, oh, God has come. He's going to gather his sheep. Yes. How's he going to gather his sheep? Well, while he was there, he was gathering sheep. He was preaching and teaching and doing miracles and all of that. And people were attracted to him and and all that. But what about when he ascends? Well, we know he's going to gather his sheep through the preaching of his word. He is going to gather his sheep through our preaching of his word. So when we're sharing faith, Jesus is involved gathering his people, you see. Can't see him, but should be in our minds. That's what's really happening here. How's he going to care for his sheep? How's he going to bind up their wounds? How's he going to help them in times of need? He says, I'm going to come through my servant David. Well, well, his servant David comes, Jesus, son of David, and, and he's the good shepherd, so he lays down his life for the sheep. He gives himself for the sheep to rescue them, to save them. But then he ascends. So how's all that going to happen? Through us. As we care for one another, as we teach one another, as we nurture one another, you see, as we're doing that, as we go to the aid of one another, Jesus is with us. He's the good shepherd. That's how this works. So again, when we read through the book of Acts, not only do we see the gathering people, we see the shepherding of of the people. In Acts chapter 14, as the Apostle Paul's establishing churches, what does he do? He appoints elders in every church, shepherds. You see. When Paul is at the end of his life, he meets with a group of elders from Ephesus and he tells them to watch over the flock that has been given to them, those very ones for whom Christ has died. 
He says, fierce wolves are going to come in, shepherding language. So you need to guard them, gives shepherds. So when Paul writes to Timothy and Titus, he says, the church has shepherds. In fact, that's how Peter understood himself. He understood himself, we'll get to this in a minute, but First Peter chapter 5, he understood himself as a fellow elder. Jesus, the chief shepherd, and then all these under shepherds, if you will, in the midst of the church. So in a very formal way, but, but we know even in a less formal way, God gifts us, each one of us in various ways, to teach, to care for. And when we do that, we need to realize that's how Jesus, the good shepherd, continues to be the shepherd of his, of his sheep. So we do it in the name of Jesus, in the power of Jesus, always. That's how it, that's how it works. So what does this have to do with, 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 with Peter? Well, Peter was an important apostle, of course. Um, I smile, we all smile when we think of Peter because of so many incidents that he gets, he gets into. We, we do know that when Peter first met Jesus, Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter uh, to mean the rock. And so you just get the sense in the very beginning of Peter's calling that somehow he was going to be an important player in all of this. And then we realize something very significant. If you can quickly turn to Matthew. You should know this passage. But Matthew chapter 16. Um, in verse 13. This is a, a situation where Jesus is with his disciples. And he asks them. Verse, middle of verse 13. Who do people say that I, the son of man is? And they give various answers to that. And then in verse 15. He said to them. But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar just means son of uh, Simon Bar-Jonah. Um, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's caused some discussion in church history. Uh, what exactly that means. At least it means I'm going to build my rock on ones like you. Verse 19. I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you, Peter, it's for about him, it's singular. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he charged, strictly charged his disciples to tell to tell no one. And so he singles out Peter at this point. God, the Father, does to reveal to Peter who Jesus really is, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says to Peter, all right, let me give you the keys of the kingdom. And, 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 and again, some in the history of the church have made too much of that. Uh, perhaps others have made too little. Uh, Peter uh, understood it that he would be one who would be an under-shepherd of the church. First Peter chapter 5, Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker, partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Um, and so, so Peter understood himself not as 
above any, but as one of. But still we see that he was used in the initial workings of the church in a mighty way. He says, Jesus said, you have the keys of the kingdom. We understand the keys of the kingdom to be the gospel. We understand the binding and loosing of one in sin or forgiveness of sins to be the working of the gospel in people's lives. And, and, and you realize that Peter was involved in opening the kingdom of God in Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Remember, that's what Jesus said to his disciples. He says, you will be my witnesses once the Spirit comes upon you in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's what happens in the book of Acts as we, as we follow it through. On the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, Peter preaches and 3,000 are loosed. <laughs> 3,000 uh, uh, souls are uh, enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then when the, there's persecution and the Christians uh, uh, flee uh, and, and go and, and, and then Philip ends up in Samaria and preaches the gospel... He does so in such a way that people believe, but yet the Spirit hasn't come upon them in the same way that he did uh, in Jerusalem. And so who goes down but Peter and John? And so Peter and John lay hands on the people and the Spirit falls upon them. And then who is it that takes the gospel to this Gentile Cornelius? But, but, but Peter. So whatever else this means, we realize that, that Peter in a sense is a it's a prototype of this one who will open up the kingdom of God. Open up the kingdom of God. But we can't help but remember that it was <clears throat> Peter who denied Jesus. I mean, if you're reading through any of the Gospels, that's got to be going through your mind. Uh, remember that Jesus predicts it <clears throat> Uh, the night before his crucifixion, and then it happens that three times Peter denies knowing Jesus when Jesus says it is his most vulnerable time. And each denial gets more vigorous than the last. In fact, Luke tells us that on the last denial that Peter and Jesus share a glance and Peter weeps. And we always have to be careful reading too much into a narrative passage. But everyone throughout the course of history has read this passage with Jesus coming to Peter, asking him the same question three times, giving him the same command three times. As a wonderful gift to Peter to assure him of forgiveness by giving him this grace of repentance and also by restoring him. Simon, do you love me more than these? Yes. Feed my lambs. Simon, do you love me? Yes. Tend my sheep. Simon, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. What a great gift to Peter. It kind of um, recognizes perhaps the elephant in the room. I mean, Peter and Jesus had seen each other a number of times uh, prior to this, but 
Again, we don't know what was going through anybody's mind, but I can't help but wonder if it wasn't going through Peter's mind in some way to think, well, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe he forgot or, 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 you know, what's, what's, what's this all about? And, and, and now Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And he gives him an opportunity for each time that he denied him to say, yes, indeed, that I do love you. And then, He says to Peter, I want you to be about this business of being a shepherd. Tend my sheep, feed my sheep. It's as if he restores him to all the calling that he had and restores the great and wonderful promises. And what a great gift to give to the other disciples because they must have heard it because John records it and and, and they know about it and they had fled too and Maybe they didn't deny him in the same way that Jesus, that Peter had, but, but surely they weren't as faithful as they could have been during those moments. And thus here they, here they are as well. And what a great gift to us. How many times have we denied Jesus in various and sundry ways? Every time we sin, I suppose there's a sense of denial. I really don't believe that what you've said is true and what you've done is true. I really don't believe that what you say about me is, is really true. And, and so we follow another, we follow another shepherd. We follow another, follow another way. Every time we fail to do what we ought. And every time we do what we ought not, as the prayer book puts it. There's a sense of denial of Jesus. I'll never forget, obviously because I'm about to relate the story to you, an incident in my own life when I was in my uh, mid-twenties. I was a student, graduate student in economics at Florida State University, and I was um, in the library, and I was in the section... Not where the economics books were, but I was in the section of the library at FSU where the Bible commentaries were. That should have been my first clue that I was in the wrong profession uh, at that point. But um, so I was grabbing some commentaries uh, to take back to my study carol when I saw one of my classmates... Uh, a bit away. And he was in my path. I was going to go there. He hadn't seen me yet, but he was in my path. And, and I remember realizing that I didn't know him well, but I knew he was incredibly bright. He was about two years ahead of me. Uh, and he was the departmental atheist. And I knew that if I walked in the direction I was headed, that he would see me, see what I had, ask me what books I was reading, and he would either ridicule me or enter into a debate and so I went the other way and uh, I realized that I shouldn't have that that was in a sense me being ashamed at Jesus that I was really one of his so a passage like this Reminds me, all of us, that there's forgiveness, there's restoration, even to a calling that we may have denied. 
how gracious of Jesus in Peter's life, how gracious of Jesus in our lives to forgive and always restore us. See, Peter understood it as a, as a humbling. Again, back in First Peter and, uh, and chapter 5, he writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. And and that's what was happening to Peter right here, there's a certain sense of being humbled. He was humbled when he denied the Lord. He was humbled in the presence of God as Jesus kept asking him over and over, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? So much so that at the third time, Peter was exasperated and said, Lord. You see, just the humility of the recognition that he denied him. The realization that I'm no better really than anyone else, even though I'm in this particular calling. You see, uh, the humbling began way before this incident. Jesus' question in his first um, inquiry is, do you love me more than these? <laughs> Who are these? Well, what was Peter asking him? It was, it was, I mean, Jesus asking him, was Jesus looking around and he saw the boats and the fishing gear? And did he say to Peter, do you love me more than your old way of life? Do you love me more than your profession? Do you love me more than fishing like this? Do you, do you love me more than, than that? Are you willing to follow me? And, and, and there's a sense in which, of course, the answer to that had been yes when Peter first left all of that. And still should be that for all of us, we should love Jesus more than Or did Jesus mean, do you love me more than these other disciples? Do you love me more than you love your brothers, these fellow disciples? And of course, we're to love Jesus um, supremely. He says we're to love him more than we love our spouses. We're to love him more than we love our children. We're to love him more than we love our lives. But still, we're to love them. That was Jesus' command. (laughs) Love one another as I've loved you. Most who deal with this passage think it means this. That Jesus was saying, Do you love me more than these love me? Because you see, there was a time when Peter thought he did. There was a time when Peter thought he really did love Jesus more than the other disciples. Because when Jesus said he was going to go and die, well, let me read you the passage, Matthew chapter 26. In verse 30, this was after uh, Jesus had been with his disciples on his way to crucifixion. And when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep 
of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away, (laughs) meaning all these other disciples, God bless him. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And that's when Jesus said, well, you'll deny me three times tonight before the rooster crows. At that humbling moment, Peter, do you still love me more than than they love me? Peter just says, well, you know that I love you. There was no more comparisons at, at that point because he would realize because of his denial that he was just like all the other disciples that Jesus had called to himself. He didn't love Jesus more or perhaps less, but the same, if you will. And so there's no comparison at that point, just that humbling thing. And what we realize is that for Peter to be a shepherd, for Peter to feed, to tend the flock, he must first realize that he's no better than any of the other sheep. You see, to be a shepherd, whether you're an elder, or whether you're a pastor, or whether you're a Bible study leader, or whether you're a small group leader, or whether you're a mom, or whether you're a dad, or whether you're a husband, or whether you're a wife, or whether you're a friend caring for another, however that is, the only way to really do that isn't by lording it over them, isn't by thinking yourself better than they, but by seeing yourself as you see them, as they are. I mean, that was always the case. Uh, Jesus humbled himself to come and to serve. He, he came, as the author of Hebrews said, as to be one like us, to take on our own weakness. We see it when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. He humbled himself. He stripped himself down uh, to be a servant in this humility. He didn't need to because he was greater. We are not greater. And we recognize that, you see. To serve, to shepherd, to care for, means that we don't see ourselves above. And so here was Peter humbled. Humbled. In fact, that's how Paul understood himself. We look at 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. Paul saw himself as a, as a recipient of grace in, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 9, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. See, first of all, he was aware of himself. He was aware of his own sin. He was aware that he didn't deserve to be this shepherd. And he could see it. He knew it. And then secondly, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Meaning, He was only aware of himself, but he was aware of the grace that had been given to him. Real grace, undeserving. You don't deserve this, but here you are. Peter would know, here you are. You don't deserve this. You fell away too, just like they did. So you're no better. But then look at the effect of all of this. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. This grace that comes, you see, then gives us How could we put it? A humble confidence, a humble assurance that Jesus, the good shepherd, is at work even as he calls us to care for one another. 
that when we're caring for each other, he, the Lord, the good, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, is shepherding, if you will, through us. That's his word. That's our confidence. How does Jesus gather? Through our preaching of the word. How does Jesus shepherd through us caring for one another? So our words are more powerful than we are. Our shepherding, our caring is more powerful than we are. Why? Because Jesus has called us to it and Jesus is behind it. For us to do it, we have to first be humbled and know our own need and then know that he is the Lord and he is at work. At work in us. One final word. I know I'm going a little longer than I should, but I've had two weeks off. And we don't have Sunday school, so give me five. Uh, But there's one other word, and, and this is a surprising twist as well. And the surprising twist is this. I would have expected Jesus to say to Peter in setting all of this up, I would have expected him to say, Peter, do you love my sheep? Because he's going to tend to the sheep. He's going to care for the sheep. And so I would expect him to say, Peter, in order to care for the sheep, you have to love the sheep. So do you love my sheep? And Peter would go, sure, I love your sheep. And Peter, Jesus would go, great, go shepherd them. But he doesn't say that. He says, Peter, do you love me? And why does he say that? Why that question? I I think this. In order to sustain caring for others, we have to, yes, love the others, but mostly, primarily, foundationally, we have to love Jesus. Why is that? It's because sometimes those we care for aren't easy to love. And yet we still have to care for them. I mean, as a parent, we know that. I mean, our kids don't jump out of bed going, I can't wait to obey my mom and dad today. I can't, I'm going to hang on every word they say, right? And so there are times when it's difficult as a parent. How do you sustain that love? Well, because you love Jesus and it pleases him. For us to love our children. How do you sustain love in marriage? Well, sometimes it's easy because your spouse is lovable. Or nearly so. Sometimes not. I've heard it more than once. I'm only staying in this marriage because I love Jesus. And I know that it pleases him. That I stay, and it only pleases him to love you. That, that's what will sustain it. Oh, very often in my life, I've been involved in examining ministers, young ministers for, for ministry. And um, there are times when it's my responsibility to give a charge to these youngsters, as, I, as they now are, and uh, often, and uh, to give them a charge, which I like, it's, to me, it's like an electrical cattle prod. It's just something that, that I'm going to say to them that'll kind of get their attention to go, okay. And so when I'm in those situations, I often carry with me a quote from John Calvin from this passage, actually, in John 21. And he puts it like this. 
He says, he says, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me? By these words, Christ means that no man can faithfully serve the church and employ himself in feeding the flock if he does not look higher than to men. So you've got to look higher than the church to be able to feed. First, the office of feeding is in itself laborious and troublesome, since nothing is more difficult than to keep people under the yoke of God, among, among whom there are many who are weak, others who are wanton and unsteady, others who are dull and sluggish, others who are slow and unteachable. I remind the young pastors that no one in my church is like that. Satan now brings forward as many causes of offense as he can that he may destroy or weaken the courage of a good pastor. In addition to this, we must take into account the ingratitude of many and other causes of disgust. No man, therefore, will steadily preserve in the discharge of his office unless the love of Christ shall reign in his heart in such a manner that he forget of him, that he's forgetful of himself and devotes himself entirely to Christ. And thus he can overcome uh, every Every obstacle, that's just true. How do we, as Paul puts it in Galatians 6, keep from becoming weary in well-doing? We do so because we love Christ. When we forget that, then we become weary. We feel used. We feel put upon. We feel underappreciated. All of which may be true, by the way. But when we love Christ, we realized, oh, wait a minute. He was put upon. He was underappreciated. He was used. He still loves. Okay. This is what pleases, you see, what, what pleases him. So then the question is, what causes us to love him so? You know, if we're to love him, how, how do we feed that, you see? How do we, how do we feed love for Christ? Um, what's astounding, again, in this passage is that, is that on the third time, Peter looks at Jesus and says, you know everything, you know that I love you. And Jesus doesn't refute him. Like, I would expect Jesus to say, you know, Peter, uh, yeah, you love me, but, you know, it's hot and cold. Because it probably was. But Jesus said, yes, it's true. And, and so I hear that and I'm encouraged by it at the same time. I say, how can I, how can I foster this love? Do you remember that there was a time in the life of Jesus when he was in the house of a Pharisee named Simon, a different Simon, and a woman came in and she had a jar of oil and she began to anoint Jesus. She wept over him. And Simon, this Pharisee, said, well, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't allow her to touch him. Jesus said, I want to tell you a story. There was a banker, essentially, who um, was owed money. By one, he was owed 500 denarii, another 50. He forgave both debts. Who would be more grateful? Who would love him more? And, and Simon said, well, the one who was forgiven the most. Jesus said, yep, you're right. You know how much you've been forgiven. You'll love much. You know your need and you know the sufficiency of Jesus. And you know that he does satisfy. You'll love much. 
the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread after giving thanks. He broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? What are we declaring? Because of Jesus, we're forgiven our sins. Because of Jesus, we're reconciled to God. Because of Jesus, we have life. Because of Jesus, we have hope. None of that we would have without him. None of that we can gain for ourselves. All we can gain for ourselves is judgment and estrangement from God, hell. Then we realize I've been forgiven much. I hear the Lord say, Bill, do you love me? I look at this table and say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Then love my people. Love one another. For that pleases me. And know that when you love one another, I'm with you. Whatever you do, whatever you say, Whatever gesture, whatever word, whatever act is more powerful than you can ever imagine. Because I'm the chief shepherd, he says. Hmm. Let's pray, Father. Grant to us grace to believe. Grant to us grace to know, Jesus, that you are the good shepherd and you're shepherding your sheep even through the likes of us. And Jesus, even as you gave yourself so that we might be yours, that we may love you, that we are now to give ourselves, that others may receive the blessing of your care and your nurture. So we pray that you would be with us to enable us to believe that and to do that. And so now I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we know that we're in your presence, Jesus, the very one who has given himself for us, the very one who died, the very one who was raised, the very one who now has ascended and who rules and reigns over all things for the sake of his church. And through his church, will bless and gather and shepherd. So please, God, as we come, I pray that you will strengthen our faith and that you will strengthen our love for you and that you would enable us to love one another. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.